Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Last April, Governor Tom Wolf signed into law Pennsylvania's medical cannabis legislation. Pennsylvanians suffering from numerous illnesses, including cancer, HIV, AIDS, epilepsy, Parkinson's disease, will all be qualified to obtain medical marijuana in the form of pills, oils, and creams, but not in plant form. A patient must be certified by a physician and issued a patient ID card. Last month, the Pennsylvania Department of Health released applications for growers and dispensers. Permanent approvals will be announced later this year, probably in June. Joining us on the program today, Christine Brand, who heads JSDC Law Office's Medical Cannabis Group. Her son, Garrett, suffers from a rare seizure disorder, Drevet uh, Syndrome. Christine Brand, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's nice to be back. It really is. We just realized that it's been almost four years since you were here before when we were in the midst of uh, when the campaign was going on for medical marijuana. In much better circumstances yeah. now. April Hutchison is the press secretary with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. Ms. Hutchison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Joining us on the phone, Kevin Provost, the co-founder of Greenhouse Ventures Partnership in Philadelphia. They consult to help grow businesses supporting the marijuana industry. Mr. Provost, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. And Dr. Andrew Rosenstein, CEO of Steep Hill, Maryland, uh, a Maryland laboratory, I should say, that tests cannabis for safety. Mr. Uh, Dr. Rosenstein, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, thank you for allowing me to join you today. Hello, everybody. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I encourage all our guests join into the conversation. It's a little bit of a challenge with a couple guests on the telephone, but uh, with four people here very knowledgeable on this topic, uh, join in at any time. Uh, Christine Brandon, we'll start with you. Uh, we just mentioned that it was about three and a half, almost four years uh, since you appeared on the program the last time. Uh, you were one of the, the leaders, a group of parents in Pennsylvania that was uh, in pushing for uh, legalization of medical marijuana because your son, Garrett, uh, could benefit from that. First of all, I'm going to start by asking about Garrett. How old is Garrett and how is he doing today? He is now six years old, uh, and uh, he, as you said, he has a rare form of epilepsy, and we are very pleased that he is doing very well for him. Uh, it's a very debilitating condition, as most epilepsies are, and uh, but he is still, in many respects, a typical boy, loves the trains, likes to roughhouse, likes to, you know, tease his sister, um, but we've seen some gains in him, uh, and he is trying to say more words, and he is attending a preschool, uh, and he's able to, uh, I think last time I was, uh, we were having this conversation, he couldn't uh, feed himself or drink on his own. He's able to drink out of uh, a sippy cup, but you know, he's able to do that, and he's now able to walk up and down steps uh, on his own. Uh, so we've we've seen some some forward development, and we couldn't be happier. He still has seizures, of course. Uh, it's uh, for him, it's genetic. He'll always have this condition, but uh, his we think his lifestyle has somewhat improved. So the seizures. Well, first of all, I should ask: is is he now using uh, cannabis? We do have a safe harbor letter from the state, uh, and so yes, we have been able to uh, try try this. Have you seen a difference in his condition? 
I think so. I think it's made uh, a positive effect on him. His seizures now, uh, in both the duration of the seizure and the frequency of the seizures, whereas uh, before his seizures might last seven minutes or 40 minutes and we have to go to the ER, uh, his seizures now last uh, usually about a minute or two and they stop on their own and we don't need to use rescue medication. Um, and. The seizures that I'm talking about are sort of the full, uh, some people call them the grand mal or tonic-clonic seizures, and uh, those we have cut down to maybe about two a month. Um, now, he'll have some bad months, um, like last month, and we don't know exactly the reason, but um, but generally his the duration and the frequency, both of them have cut down. But we've seen other gains, too, his eye contact, his behavior, his uh physical ability to go up and down steps, his verbal skills, just seeing gains sort of all the way around. Um, and can I pinpoint that on this? I, I, I don't know. Um, but we haven't seen any regression, which is uh, just astounding to us. And, and we're glad about that. The last time you were here, and this was well before the governor signed the legislation last spring. Uh, the last time you were here, you were here with a, a couple other parents too. And I've talked with a number of parents that uh, where all of you got together and as I said, uh, pushed for this legislation. I, you know, I would go as far as saying, and I think you may have even used this word, but I know some other parents have, that you were desperate. At that point, you were desperate because you didn't know what would happen with your son and the other children of uh, with, the, with the other parents as well. So I can I actually tell you, and I haven't seen you in three years, but that your state of mind, that you feel much better as a parent than what you did three years ago, I can tell you were scared three years ago. Oh, I think, and, and we're still scared, but we're so much more optimistic. Um, like I said, this is we're here under much better circumstances. And that, that group of parents, yes, um, to some level we were desperate, and we still are. We will do, you know, whatever it takes to try and improve uh, our children's, you know, daily life, you know, and their existence. Uh, they're uh, an uphill battle from day from the moment they wake up. Um, and that group has not disbanded. Um, that group is still just as strong. And I think actually now the role, of, of course, I think that group was critical um, in many ways, you know, uh, emotional support for us, but also in our grassroots lobbying efforts. But I think that role of that group now, which is the Campaign for Compassion, is crucial and relevant now as we continue to need education. And that was a big part of, I think, the success of this bill is educating everyone. What is this really about? What isn't it about? And we still need that education and keeping the patients um, at the forefront of this. And, and I think that they will continue to have a critical role in this, as we may have big industry people coming into the state, which, you know, I'm so excited that that's where we are today. We are at a point where we have the bill passed, and in less than a year after the bill has passed, we will have the application submitted to the state for the grower processors and the dispensaries. Uh, the timeline is Fantastic. I imagine it can't come soon enough for you, though. Well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me bring April, April Hutchinson in from the Department of Health. Uh, you know, something that Christine mentioned, April, 
uh, about going out of state, that that is written into the law that uh, for some immediate relief for uh, some of the, uh, the parents and their, and their children or the people who are suffering from some of these 17 illnesses. Talk a little bit about that. And I'm going to bring Dr. <laughs> you know, Dr. Uh, uh, Rosenstein in, too, because federal government-wise, we still don't have, you know, this is, this is not legal under federal guidelines, but talk about what in particular that Christine has been doing. So we have to date 177 families have been uh, and caregivers have been approved for safe harbor letters to make sure that they can provide um, this medication to their children. Um, it's only for minors at this point. And so what we're doing now is working as quickly as we can to safely and effectively put together a program to make sure that we get everyone access um, to the medication who needs it, the 17 medical conditions as you talked about. Um, so 177 families currently have the ability now under the Safe Harbor program to provide the medication to their children. But again, it is still um, federally, um, you know, a, still a controlled substance fe mm. federally. Dr. Rosenstein, let me bring you into the conversation at this point. Sure. Uh, you know, we have a new administration. We have a new attorney general. I don't know whether there's been any signal yet from uh, the new administration in Washington about any effort to crack down on this. Have you heard of anything so far? Well, I think <clears throat> there's a there's certainly a lot of uneasiness. Um, we <clears throat> we're, we're we're centered in Maryland, but we also are starting our business in D.C. as well, and we will be coming to Pennsylvania. But in D.C., where we're developing a grassroots testing program, and in the District of Columbia has just announced that they want testing. Um, they have a medical program that actually did not have testing to date, and so um, you know we have met with a lot of people that have true concerns about what may happen, and I think we're all. You know, we all have real concerns. I mean, obviously, the one thing is that there's a lot of momentum going forward for programs throughout the country, and the states are, are kind of pushing forward. So it's <clears throat> sometimes it's hard to, to kind of roll the snowball back up the hill, but the truth of the matter is, is that there, there, is, there is concern that the federal government could make adjustments, could become more aggressive, um, could change their approach, and I think everybody in the industry is, is sitting back and, and waiting to see what the priorities of the new administration are going to be, but I think there are concerns. I mean, you would think that, okay, now, again, new administration three weeks in, we don't know what uh, what they're going to do, but you would think at this point the federal government, uh, the Department of Justice, would have made a move if they were going to. Well, you know, that's, that's true, but of course, you know, uh, the Supreme Court may change. I mean, uh, Roe v. Wade, you know, hopefully won't be overturned, but some things things are going to change, I mean, because it's a conservative administration. So, you know, they have the new the new administration has been very active. You would hope that this is not going to be higher on their radar screen because there's a lot of other problems that the country has to face and there's a lot of patients that are suffering. Um, but I think that uh, I think there's a certain unpredictability that we all need to be aware of. And I think that uh, there is a general uneasiness. But I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I, it's very hard to go backwards at the state level. And, and if anything, you know, the administration kind of believes in the sovereignty of the state. So hopefully um, things will continue to progress like they are. But I, I definitely think people are aware and are watching, you know, watching and waiting to see what's going to happen. I'm going to take phone calls and uh, questions from listeners throughout the program. I want to go to Emily in Lingolstown. Emily, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yes. Um, I have a question about the specific ailments 
that um, that bill specifies about you know what kind of people can can try this for their disease or their ailment. Um, my husband has ulcerative colitis. He suffered with it for about going on eight years now. Um, it can be really hard and painful and disrupt his life. Um, he has kind of bounced around on medicines and one works for a while and then his body you know starts to resist it and he has to go to another one and they kind of ravage him specifically he's been on prednisone a lot and as a result he's gotten osteopenia so it's like it's that snowball thing of one medicine might help this symptom but it turns into other symptoms anyway um i guess what i'm wondering is why would something like IBD and then Crohn's disease be on the list and not ulcerative colitis, but in other states, ulcerative colitis is on the list. So is that like a matter of time, you know, before it's added to the list? Is there just more research that needs done in our state for them to approve other diseases that are kind of related? Hey, thank you very much for your call. April, is that something you can address? I mean, there are 17 illnesses listed for you know who would be eligible to get the prescription. When uh, And this is a bipartisan effort to come to this point Probably to get us here. Probably the biggest bipartisan effort we've seen in years. <laughs> exactly. And so... Um, you know, when in developing the legislation, um, these the governor and the administration have worked very closely with the legislature to come up with um, a list of, of conditions that have been also uh, proven to benefit from. And studies have shown that these conditions benefit from this type of treatment. Um, you know, what I can say is that physicians will be um, certified to be part of the program. And if your physician is certified to be part of the program, talk to them about whether or not your condition meets these requirements. And if it does, um, if your your husband would benefit from um, this type of treatment. Um, so it's very important that patient-doctor relationship is very essential as part of this program. We're dealing with a medication. Um, and so it's very important to have that relationship and have that conversation if this is something that you your physician feels you would benefit from, do you fall into the conditions and the circumstances? So basically what you're saying is that those 17 illnesses are not set in stone at this point, that there could be others added down the road? Uh, that's actually, this is set in stone because this is what um, the legislation... For now. For, for, this is what we're working with and this is what we're working from. Okay. Um, we need to use this as our starting point, um, but again, it's the, the the relationship with the parent or with the patient and the physician that's really at the core of all of this to see whether or not this is something you would benefit from. Christine Brand, your law firm, and, and you're heading this up at uh, your law firm JSDC. And, uh, Dr. Rosenstein, I'll bring you in in just a moment. Uh, your law firm started uh, a medical cannabis group talk about this because I, I know that when the legislature was coming up with this was was finalizing this that you know at first we started with just the kids and seizures to and you know quite frankly I'm surprised that we made it up to 17 different illnesses what about that and maybe you can describe what this cannabis unit that you have with your law firm will be doing so with the list of conditions, um, there are 17, and and let's you know face the facts. This was you know a bargaining uh, list. It it changed throughout 
the two and a half years that this bill was uh, on the table. And there is an advisory board as part of the act to be uh, uh, members to be appointed to be on the board. One of the tasks of the advisory board is to prepare reports uh, to the governor. And one of the things that the board could do is recommend that other medical conditions be included in that. Uh, so um, April's right for the time being, being we are st- sort of stuck with this list. Um, but um, it, there is the possibility that it could be expanded. Uh, Dr. Rosenstein, go ahead. I was just going to say, is Crohn's disease on the list? Is that what she was saying? But ulcerative colitis is not. Does anybody know the answer to that question? Because I don't have the list of 17 yes. in front of me. Okay. That that is that is correct. I just I was going to add that actually um, you know I'm a I'm a board certified gastroenterologist in Maryland. I'm the chief of the division of gastroenterology at St. Joe's Medical Center in, in in Baltimore, and I've been seeing IBD patients um, like you know her husband for for many years that are using cannabis. So there are some patients that really seem to derive benefit from that, and I think that you know differentiating between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, they all kind of go under the IBD banner. It might be something that Pennsylvania will look at down the road. Um, you know, there's, there was actually a, a randomized clinical trial that looked at um, a possibility of what's called an anti-TNF effect of cannabis for patients with IBD. And you may have heard of drugs like Humira um, that are used to tr- treat really sick patients with uh, inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, yeah, we see the commercials and, all the time, yeah. Exactly. So this mechanism action these drugs work through, it's thought that maybe some of the cannabinoids actually have a similar mechanism action, and that may be why some patients with inflammatory bowel disease um, kind of respond to cannabis. So what I just want to comment on is that I I do think, hopefully, uh, you know, patients with severe UC are just as sick as patients with severe Crohn's and kind of all fall under that same banner. And I'm hoping that, A, that will change, and B, there's some really exciting research opportunities to look at how um, treatment with cannabis will influence patients with IBD, and I, I think there's a lot of a lot of work to be done in this space, and I think it's going to be a true benefit for patients. It's one of the things that people aren't really talking about as much, but there's a true opportunity there. So that was my comment. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about the status of Pennsylvania's medical marijuana program, and uh, we have four guests today. Joining us on the program, Kevin Provost, co-founder of Greenhouse Venture Partnership in Philadelphia. They consult to help grow businesses that support the marijuana industry. Dr. Andrew Rosenstein, CEO of Steep Hill, that's a Maryland laboratory that tests cannabis for safety. Christine Brand, who heads the law firm, or I should say heads JSDC's law firm's medical cannabis group. Her son, Garrett, uh, is is one of the, the, the patients that will benefit from medical marijuana. And April Hutchinson is the press secretary with the Pennsylvania Department of Health. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter, we're on Twitter, at smarttalkwitf. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Before we bring Kevin into the conversation, April, I wanted to ask you about our status right now. Where are we in the program right now? Well, we, on February 20th, the application process will open for grow processors and for dispensaries. Um, that application process will go on till March 20th. So between, in that window from February 20th to March 20th, we'll begin accepting applications. 
After that, um, depending on how many applications we get, we're anticipating around 900. Um, we think it'll take about 90 days um, to go through and process those applications. We're looking um, at this program to be fully up and running by 2018. Okay, when you say fully up and running, what does that mean? Does that that mean means patients? that patients would be able to acquire medication. Okay, and just as a reminder, how will patients be able to do that? So the next steps for us, obviously, within our regulatory process are the application for the laboratories for physicians and, and then setting up the process for patients. Uh, but what you would do if, if you're someone who would need this medication and feel like you're qualified, first you talk with it, about it with your doctor. Um, your doctor then would issue um, what we call a certification letter. It's a recommendation saying, my, I believe my patient can benefit from this. Um, you would then apply to the state and get an ID card with, along with that certification letter and then be able to take that certification letter and the ID card to a dispensary to get the medication. So, you know, a lot of people probably, uh, you know, they are aware of what's happening in Colorado and Washington and some other states. And that's with recreational marijuana where, you know, you just show up mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, ask for a certain amount of marijuana. It is not that way here, right? It is absolutely not that way. At the dispensaries, there will be um, a physician or a pharmacist on site um, dispensing this medication. Um, so we are making sure that this remains a patient medically focused program. Um, the forms even in which the medication can be delivered, whether it's a pill or a topical um, or an ointment, um, all of those things are meant to make sure that this is a medical program. Um, the patients are first and foremost in our mind. Kevin Provost, you're a co-founder of Greenhouse Ventures. Uh, your website describes it as a business business accelerator specific to ancillary startups in the cannabis industry, and your mission is to assist in building a successful and sustainable cannabis industry by accelerating the growth of startups that service the industry. When you're talking about the medical cannabis industry, what are those ancillary ancillary businesses that you're talking about? Sure. So. Um, historically, we have worked with um, a lot of technology companies outside of the cannabis space. And uh, so what our area of expertise coming into the cannabis industry was primarily in, in, in software and technology businesses. Um, when we look at the medical cannabis side of the industry, what we're seeing from and hearing from doctors and dispensary owners and patients is um, one of the big problems is, is the patient feedback loop. And as there are um, few best practices especially here in the States, there's more internationally on uh, the plant science of the industry. But, um, you know, without uniformity in the, in, in the science on the medicine side relative to dosing and administration, um, there are a lot of organizations, startup companies out there trying to attack the problem of how to track things like patient dosing and then, again, providing that data feedback to physicians and pharmacists and dispensary owners who are all part of uh, the interaction with patients. So um, the patient feedback loop is it's a big problem, and there are multiple little pieces of the, of the solution that different companies are bringing to the table, and that's certainly one. Um, anything that requires uh, data insights that doctors and patients and physicians are looking for to make better educated decisions about is cannabis the best, you know, um, the best medicine for them? And if so, in what form and at what dose? And um, the more we learn about the plant, the more we're understanding its, its versatility 
and how flexible and, and, and adaptable it is with, with our, you know, our own systems inside of us. So uh, <clears throat> what we're interested in long-term is 20% of our portfolio will shift to plant-touching businesses, but not, not cultivation and dispensary, more, more on the testing and the plant science side of things because that's where we see the real, the real advantage for, you know, for humankind is, is, in the, is in the medicine, which is why we're really excited about the Pennsylvania market here. And uh, obviously the, the Northeast corridor of, of the U.S. is positioned very well for, for the medical side. How big of an industry can this become? I mean, because it seems like every day, you know, since the Department of Health on the 20th of February, we'll be opening that up. seems like every day I see, uh, you know, a news report about another company or another county that is looking uh, to, uh, you know, locate some of these facilities. Yeah, so um, when you're talking about the Pennsylvania market or, or a lot of the markets, you know, New Jersey, New York, Maryland, Ohio, um, the thing to remember here is that it's not a Colorado, it's not a California, so we're not talking about the crazy numbers with recreational like you're seeing in the news. Um, you know, these are these are these are capped permit physician registry and and no home cultivation states, which typically, you know, historically means lower patient population, higher prices for for medicine, and somewhat restricted access. So, um, you know what. What we're trying, one of the problems we're trying to solve here in Pennsylvania that, that um, you know, I'd be interested in what the other panelists have to say is on, is on the physician education side of things. Um, I believe Christine mentioned, um, you know, the reliance on, on physicians and pharmacists, and, and we see that really as, as a potential bottleneck because, um, you know, they do have to be you know, in the registry and they do have to get a level of education, and then obviously that's how patients get educated. So um, you're not going to see the cannabis commercial that you do for Humera on TV. You're going to need to, you know, have a proactive physician or pharmacist or as a, as a patient yourself, or, or perhaps a parent to a child who's a patient, uh, as a caregiver, you need to go out and do that exploration. And so we see the education and training of physicians, of pharmacists, as potentially a bottleneck in, in some of these northeast states. All right, let me ask uh, April and Christine about that. Bottleneck potential for that? Well, we have actually a physician advisory group who has been working um, with us on that aspect um, and working on the physician education um, part of this program. Um, physicians are key to the program, and there is continued education built into um, the law itself for physicians to participate in the program. There's um, actually required education, right? Don't doctors who participate have to? There's four hours of continuing education required for a physician to become part of the registry. Um, but our physician work group has been meeting and providing us with feedback and input as to the best ways to we work with physicians. Um, there are many physicians in the state who are already um, looking at this as a potential medication um, for their patients. And so we've been working even through our patient advocate um, to make sure that um, we are including everybody in the process. Will there be like a directory of physicians? I ask that question because a lot of people, when they think of that, they think of their insurance, their health insurance. Mm -hmm. Oh, does this doctor, okay, here's the health insurance my employer is offering. Here are the doctors who are participating. Will you have anything like that? There won't be a, uh, a directory per se. Um, this is absolutely um, something between a patient and their physician. And so on one side, the physicians are learning 
more about the benefits of this medication for their patients. And on the other side, the patients are asking their physicians to be part of this program. Oh, go ahead, Christine. And, and this makes it somewhat problematic as we were talking about a bottleneck in terms of the physicians can't advertise that they are uh, practicing in uh, and will be willing to write certifications for our patients. And the patients have to be under the continuing care of that particular physician. So not only do you need to have the physician register under the state's program, that physician cannot write a certification for someone that lives three hours away that just happens to come and you visit doctor them. Shop. You cannot do that in Pennsylvania. Okay, and when you say continuing care, does that mean that uh, this patient would have to be a, pa a patient of that doctor for a certain amount of time? Presumably. No, continuing care isn't defined. Um, to my knowledge, under the act, but uh, it has to. It, it's not supposed to allow the you know, pot doc shopping. Okay. Well, the reason I ask that question is because, say, my doctor, my family doctor, doesn't, or the doctor that uh, I see, uh, you know, doesn't uh, participate in the program, and I have to go find someone else who does. Uh, you know, you walk in the office the first time and say, "Listen, here's the reason I am here because my doctor doesn't do this." I mean, that's completely legal. You, it, again, it's a conversation between the patient and the doctor. So, okay, you know, I don't understand what that means. Well, it, in other <laughs> words, when I'm sitting in the room with my doctor having a conversation of, I have this con condition, can you treat me for this condition? And is this part, is this something that I can try? Um, you know, you need to have that conversation with that physician. But no, it, it you know, we're dealing with a medication here, so we want right. to make sure that um, within these 17 conditions that people are under regular care, that it is being monitored. Um, you know, when you go into a dispensary, you're getting a 30-day supply. You're not going in and getting a six-month supply or, you know, and, and you need to wait like a regular medication to get a refill. Mm -hmm. um, so you want to make sure that the physician that you're also doing, we're, we're being responsible in the care of the individuals who are receiving this treatment. You know, Dr. Rosenstein, here in Pennsylvania, the entire time that uh, this issue was being discussed and debated way back when, uh, you know, there, as Christine said earlier, education was a big part of this, but uh, there were a lot of people who were not familiar with uh, medical cannabis and its uses. Just to dispel something right now that uh, has been discussed fairly often, people can't get high from this, right? You mean from processed products? Well, I mean from uh, medical marijuana, the oils, the creams, and all that. I mean, unless they're smoking it, they're not getting high. Well, I'm not an expert on the on you know the pharmacology of it, but um, I mean, I think that there, you know, the, it is very different. The processed products um, are absorbed differently, and the body responds differently to, to the processed products. I mean, but there there is going to be a certain amount of THC in in some of these processed products, and so there, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some central effect for some people, depending on you know how the, there's so much variation in what processes are going to do, and and the different cannabinoids that are going to make up their products. That it's impossible to say that I think safely without knowing about dosage, without knowing about the process of how something's put together, and and the different cannabinoid components of the medication. So I think that's a tough question. Well, Christine just corrected me a little bit when I said you can't get high. Well, one of the successes, I think, of PA's bill is that there is no limit, um, on there's no cap on the amount of THC. And why that is important is uh, 
a CBD only does not treat all of these conditions. Uh, and so some have this entourage effect that you need some THC or uh, THCA, which is the unactivated part of THC, and the CBD all to work together. Um, and the I'd like the doctor to weigh in um, if you know you know more about this, which I'm assuming you do than I do. But what I'm learning, uh, again, this constant learning curve, uh, that people that have some of these really debilitating, these serious medical conditions that are outlined, their systems are deficient in their endocannabinoid. Uh, system within their bodies. Whereas if I were to you know, try something with a THC, I might feel that effect. But someone who might have these, one of these serious medical conditions, they're deficient in that system, and it's they're not going to feel it in the same way that I would. Mm. Okay. Uh, Go ahead, Dr. Rosen, see what you're going to say. Yeah, I'm just going to say it's, you know, it's a complicated, I think the entourage effect is something that's well described, and I think it's worth commenting on that. Um, you know, it is clear that you need multiple cannabinoids in certain, for certain disease processes that patients respond better. But, you know, what I would say is this. It, it, is, it is very complicated. There are, just like in a lot of different disease processes, presumed, you know, receptor deficiencies that play a role in how patients respond. So, um, but to say that there would be zero response to THC, I mean, I think it's hard to say, basically, because some of these products will have THC, and I think some patients will have I don't know if getting high is the right term, but, you know, may have some, some alteration in how they feel to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one of the fascinating things about the whole program and, and, and the way Pennsylvania is doing things is that there is an emphasis on research. And I think, you know, we know that probably you need a variety of cannabinoids for patients to have responses who have certain disease processes, but we don't know why. And we don't know exactly what the ratios are. And I think, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence. But, you know, from a physician standpoint, <clears throat> I'm really excited about the research opportunities that are going to come along to, to kind of be a little bit more specific in how we treat the patients. So I think it's a complicated question, and, and, um, and I, I, I think that there's a lot that we still need to know. But it's clear that a lot of patients do need multiple cannabinoids in, in the medications they're going to receive to get the response that we're looking for. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about uh, Pennsylvania's medical marijuana program and uh, where we are, the status of that medical marijuana program. Joining us today, Christine Brand, who heads JSDC Law Office of Medical Cannabis Group. April Hutchison, who is press secretary with the Department of uh, Health in Pennsylvania. Kevin Propo. Provost, uh, co-founder of Greenhouse Ventures Partnership in Philadelphia, and Dr. Andrew Rosenstein, CEO of Steep Hill, that's a Maryland laboratory that tests cannabis for safety. should also mention that uh, Kevin Provost and uh, Dr. Rosenstein will be speaking at the World Medical Marijuana Business Conference and Expo April 21st and 22nd in Pittsburgh. It's the first large-scale physician-led conference for health care providers and patients interested in medical marijuana. If you have a question or comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Let's take a call now from Andy in Lancaster. Andy, you're on the air. Thank you. This is very important what you guys are doing. I mean, I believe in medical marijuana very much. It's sad that the government allows us to use venom like snake venom, spider venom, we can take a poisonous plant, and a pharmacy is allowed to take that very easily and create a drug, you know, versus 
marijuana and the stigma behind it. Now, I just use the word marijuana, but you got to get away from that for the medical side. You guys are still saying a little bit of hemp, but in between, you know, marijuana was a name given to it by politicians to make it sound worse when they were trying to, you know, make it illegal and all this. You know, it's hemp, all right? It was one of the biggest cash crops of this country. Now, I don't like the recreational side because that's causing a lot more stigma to the medical side. You know, when Colorado opened it, the THC level, like you say, to get high, there really is no regulation the proper way. So you do have people using a lot of it. Hey, but I Eddie, do believe in what you guys are doing. Thank you very much, uh, Christine. I'm going to ask you this because you have been there from the beginning. Just what Andy mentioned, as far as the stigma goes with marijuana, that was one of the holdups in getting this done, wasn't it? It was absolutely one of the holdups, and it is this education component. Uh, and I am, I would like to think unlike any other person that first heard about this. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I want to try this for our son's benefit when I first heard about the concept of medical marijuana, but I did not know how he would ingest it. Is it something he would smoke? I was, you know, now I look back and say I was naive, but I had no idea. And so there is this idea of learning about this, what, what medical marijuana really is about. Um, and uh, the stigma with the uh, elected officials okay. and constant talking to them and filling them in. Kevin, do you even run into that? Kevin, are you there? Yep. Oh, do you do you even run into that? Uh, which what? I'm sorry. As what? far as that stigma goes, when you tell people that you're in the marijuana industry, <clears throat> we don't. But we see a lot of you know more the professional service providers, lawyers, accountants, insurance people. Um, you know, and even some, some doctors who are, who are inquiring concerned about that stigma. Um, you know, as technology and software developers, um, and, and even, you know, half of our team is educators, um, we didn't have quite that crossover. But, um, you know, we're, we're educators for lawyers and doctors. We do CME and CLE programs um, and, and a lot of professional training for, uh, you know, professional service providers who are coming into the industry and, um, you know, oftentimes even the hesitancy to show up at a training session is due to the stigma of being associated with something that has such a, you know, such a gray area between federal and, and state regulations. And it's not until, you know, I think uh, the second half of last year that, that Pennsylvania's, uh, the PA Bar Association actually put something out that said, hey, we're, you know, your, 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 your uh, law license in PA isn't going to be affected. Um, you know, we're not going to actively go after you. Um, you know, for, for, for consulting with, with uh, uh, cannabis companies. And, you know, I know my uh, personal counsel had, had some issues until that statement was put out. So um, while I didn't experience it, we see it, you know, uh, day in and day out. We have another caller here, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Nichols. You're on the phone. Uh, you're on the line, I should say. Yes, that's correct. What's your question or comment? Well, the comment is that the role has been very uh, haphazard. I've basically been involved on the fringe, actually, actually in the hemp industry, to somewhat trying to get it legalized in Pennsylvania industrial hemp. So I met a lot of the patients. The, a lot of these kids have these uh, seizure disorders like Lennox, Gestalt, or Dravet, and they were getting it out in Colorado. And I, as a result, I had also worked for the VA for about uh, two different stints. 
first uh, in Virginia and then down in Martinsburg, where I saw about two-thirds to one-half of our patients who were on polypharmacy. And I used to say, you can't take all these medications, but you're on like 14 meds. They say, oh, no, doc, I only take three or four, and I smoke marijuana. And I said, that helps you if you're pain or what you told me. And they said, oh, you have depression, trouble sleeping, pain, uh, anxiety, PTSD. So I became very interested in it. So I've actually gone ahead and taken a course last year they actually had in, in Maryland. You know, and I, I'm licensed in Pennsylvania. And I went down and took the course, patients out of time. And there was a two-day course on medical cannabis. It was very well done. I think I was the only person from Pennsylvania that was a physician there. It just shows you. So... Well, when you say when you say it's happening, I've learned a lot. But the problem is, I've actually even called about being registered, and I got nowhere. The uh, the, the people said, "We'll, we'll call you back. Uh, we'll take your number." Uh, there's there's a it's a real problem in in, in the in the heart of Pennsylvania, and, and and trying to get the you know the education out there. I've also taken a CME course through the state, which was you know required for licensing, which only gives you two hours. So they're they're. I'm a, I'm a neurogastroenterologist, and there's, there's some real problems here in the rollout, and I'd like to have that addressed. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, April, I don't know how much of that you can address as the press secretary, but uh, he called it haphazard, and he experienced it. I mean, uh, have you had issues? I mean, first of all, not getting a call back, uh, that's just not acceptable. Well, I believe he's saying that he did, but that we don't have a way to register him okay, yet, okay. Um, is what he said. You know, this is um, a very unique process. Um, typically, when you go through a regulatory process, most of the work happens and then the regulations being presented. So we are actually developing the regulations and implementing them at the same time. Um, an 18 to 24 month time frame to implement this program is is very aggressive and we have work, folks working nonstop to make that happen. Um, so every step of the way we've made sure that patients and providers and um, folks within the community have an ability to provide comment. So what we've done is we've tackled right now the permit process between the grower and dispensaries. How are we going to grow this? What are the security concerns? What about the dispensaries? Where are they going to be located? What's the security going to be like there? How is it going to be dispensed? The next thing for us to tackle, obviously, is the laboratory permitting processes and then a way for the registry of the doctors and then the patient process. So. This is an ongoing working process. Um, while we completely understand the need for folks to get this medication right now, um, we're working as quickly as we can to make that happen. You mentioned security. I mean, we are going to have people in this state growing marijuana. How do you protect that? So within the regulations themselves and within the application process, those growers and processors are going to obviously outline how they're going to maintain security. But we have certain things spelled out, uh, secure perimeter, video surveillance, 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week security on-site, physical presence. Um, the goal, even from the transportation from the grower processor to the dispensary, is lined, uh, outlined to be a very secure process. Um, we're tracking this product from seed to sale. So from the seed from the grower all the way through 
to the patient. So we know exactly um, the plant and the medication that the patient is, is receiving. Um, so this is a, quite an undertaking to take in such a short amount of time. What's been really of our benefit is that not only has the community been working with us and providing us with input, but we're, you know, we're getting input from our legislative partners, from the communities themselves. Um, the industry has submitted anonymous, um, answered anonymous surveys as to what they need as to make this happen. Our goal is to make sure that patients get access to medication as quickly and effectively as we can provide it. We need to make sure that this is a safe process. And that's what we're doing. All right, before we take more phone calls, uh, Dr. Rosenstein, uh, April just mentioned safe process. And one of your jobs, one of the things that uh, you do at uh, Steep Hill is to test for safety. Tell me about that process. So I think, I think you know, I, I totally agree with April. First and foremost, it's all about patient safety. Um, you know, patients need their medication, but it doesn't do the patients any good if it's, if it's not safe. And Pennsylvania has outlined a very comprehensive testing program for the patients from a laboratory perspective. They're going to be, you know, the growers and processors are going to be asked to test their cannabis for heavy metals like lead and mercury and cadmium. You might say, well, why would you, why would you test for mercury? Well, think about it. Um, you know, the cannabis plant um, absorbs heavy metals very, very well. So when you process cannabis, you may actually, if the, if the plant is being grown in, in a mercury-laden soil, um, it can absorb the cannabis, and patients could be exposed to high mercury levels, just like they do with tuna, for example. You know, you know, pregnant women are not supposed to eat a lot of tuna in a can because of the mercury levels. So, so that's one of the things the state's doing. The state's also, obviously, all the cannabis in its, in its flower form will be looked at for, for insect infestation and, and other adulterants. Um, and it's going to be tested uh, for pathogens, okay, like yeast, mold, and bacteria. Remember that this is a plant, and I, I think I can compare it to there's been outbreaks of E. coli and salmonella and spinach, for example, that you see in grocery stores, you see recalls. Well, it, you know, cannabis is no different. It's, it is exposed to mold and bacteria depending on how it's handled and its moisture content, et cetera. And in California, for example, unfortunately, they've actually traced a death or two back to contaminated cannabis that was contaminated with mold for patients, you know, the chemotherapy patients whose immune systems were compromised. So... Uh, you know, Pennsylvania's outlined testing for bacteria, for mold, um, for potency, um, for processed uh, products, um, for example, residual solvents. So certain products are going to be processed, and there could be residual solvents like butane, for example, that's used to process cannabis that is checked for. So it's, it's a very comprehensive uh, look at the cannabis, uh, and it's going to be tested very aggressively. Um, and I think that that is really important for patient safety. And it can't be underscored, right, because, you know, it's a medication just like any other medication. When you go to your pharmacy and you pick up your antibiotic, you're assuming that it's, been, it's gone through a lot of testing, that it's safe. Before you give a pill to your child or to your sick grandparent, you want to make sure that it's been properly tested. And, and you know, in Steep Hill, um, and we are going to be in Pennsylvania, actually, I should mention that we will be applying for a lab application in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, we've been doing cannabis testing for, for eight years based out in Berkeley, and, you know, we've, we've really developed the science necessary to make this, uh, you know, a safe product for patients. So Pennsylvania has done a great job. They have a very comprehensive testing program. Um, and they are, I think it's going to be really focused on patient safety. And, and I think that, you know, professionals who, like, like me who have a lot of experience in, in, in clinical testing are going to get involved to make sure that the bar is raised 
and that patients are protected. And, and I think Pennsylvania has done a great job outlining that process. April, you wanted to add to that? Well, I, you know, as Dr. Rosentine had said, what what we're seeing here, and I think this is very unique, and people um, are are need to kind of understand that. We have a very transparent process in how this is happening. So we're not rolling out, here are all the rules, and go forward. Um, the regulatory process that's happening right now is happening step by step by step, and we're actually getting to see that happen. We're, ve- we're getting to be able to provide input every step of the way. And so it's very important to make sure that this comprehensive program remains safe, that we get the input from not only the parents and the caregivers, from the physicians, from the laboratories, we want to make sure that when we roll out in 2018 with this program, that we have something safe, effective, and gets medication to the patients who need it. Let's take one more phone call. Claire is in Pine Grove. Claire, you're on the air. Hello, Claire. Okay, well, Claire's question was something that you talked about uh, earlier. Uh, we're talking about how a, a patient can get access to the medication. She said her current primary doctor won't pursue it despite it being helpful for her. We kind of touched on this, but uh, quickly, what kind of advice would you give her? Okay. Well, if the primary care physician, and I think a, a lot of these conditions require more than uh, just because of the conditions that patient, child, or adult will have more than one doctor treating them. Um, so you might have the primary care physician, but you might have the specialized neurologist as well. Um, so I think that uh, any prospective caregiver or patient should talk to all of the doctors whose care they are under at the moment. Um, and potentially, you know, the, you may have to switch doctors um, and, uh, and, and talk to a physician that is willing to explore this. Quickly, uh, we have an email here, and I'll try to shorten it a little bit. Uh, this uh, person who wrote in said, I have a hard time with children only being able to obtain a card at this time. What makes an adult, an adult less deserving of relief? And my second concern is, what would the prescription cost? Well, I can speak to the one the sort of why it's under 18, uh, and in that, again, was not the intended purpose, uh, at least from the lobbying efforts of uh, the parents that were trying to do that. And um, so they, the adults are no less deserving. So, But at this, at this time. At but this, at this time, that's the way that the, the regulations are And, it, are and at this time, the, 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 we're trying to get help for those children who need it immediately. And, and obviously, there are folks who need care and the access to this medication. That's why we're working as hard as we can to get it out there. Any idea about prescription costs? Well, as far as the cost, it's going to be market-based. Um, we do have the, uh, we will be monitoring costs. The Department of Health and Department of Revenue are taxed in the legislation itself to monitor cost. Um, there is the ability to cap cost if it gets out of control for a period of six months, um, but it will be a market-based program. You know, there are going to be people who hate to hear that because we've heard those horror stories about medications that uh, have gone up 300,000 percent. Go ahead. What are you say, well, there is, there is a cap, and maybe April okay. wants yeah. to talk. They, well, there, there there is, I only have about 10 seconds. So. There is a cap that is uh, allowed by the legislature. We'll be monitoring it. The, the goal, again, is to get medication to the patients, and okay. that's what we're going to work to do. I want to thank all four of you for being with us today. I learned a lot. I'm sure our audience did, too, but this is uh, an issue that we will continue to follow uh, because we are in the midst of this process, and uh, it will be a few months, uh, 2018, before it could be completely up and running. Again, thank all four of you for being 
being with us today. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Coming up on tomorrow's program, uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, well, we're going to be talking about heroin and uh, um, Narcan. So that comes up tomorrow.